I'm Kate Parker. This is Warming Signs, a podcast with the sound minds of science. Feeling the sand between your toes while listening to the soothing sounds of the sea and maybe sipping on a little something? Sounds divine, doesn't it? And that is just part of what attracts so many people to coastline living. And a lot of us are drawn to it. In 2010, 123.3 million people lived in counties directly on the shoreline. That's 39% of the U.S. population. And that number is expected to increase to nearly 50% this year. But in a warming world, those at the coast face an uncertain future. Sea level rise is changing the coastal landscape, and it's happening quicker than cities and states can respond. During Climate Week in New York, I got to speak to Dr. Ayana Johnson. She's a marine biologist who specializes in helping coastal cities become resilient, and her passion was so invigorating. Just like our beloved coastlines, the conversation meanders a bit, but it'll make you look at what it means to live near the water in a completely different light. Dr. Johnson, thank you for pausing for a moment to come and talk to me here for Warming Signs. Thanks for having me. This is great. You have been all over the place with the global climate strike, speaking and moving an entire crowd of people. And not just that, I saw the ripples all across social media as a result. How are you feeling? Where are you right now? I'm feeling, I'm feeling like, like a, I think like the eye of a hurricane, right? Like there's so much happening right mm. now and I'm f- actually feeling quite calm. Like I could use a little bit more sleep, but <laughs> I, I'm feeling like, okay, this is good. Like we need this energy and we need this spiraling powerful like high intensity accelerating energy around this issue and I'm just kind of um, doing my part and kind of also just watching it swirl and it's really a thrill as someone who's been working on conservation environment climate issues for so long I mean, it's so funny to see the like kids introduce themselves. I'm a 16-year-old climate activist. I'm like, I'm a 39-year-old climate <laughs> activist, and I never thought I'd be an activist, but here we are, and like we all have a part to play. And I guess this is a useful role for me. So I'm I'm actually feeling, um, I'm feeling good about my ability to contribute to pushing forward the discussion about solutions and how fast we get there or if we get there. I have no idea, but as an individual, I feel I feel fine. It's interesting that you called yourself a climate activist. Yeah. I don't think I've ever said that into a microphone before. I was going to say because... yeah, yesterday or two days ago. (laughs) You are a scientist. Mm -hmm. What drove you from, you know, focusing on the science into this very public realm in communicating it? It's been um, a really steady transition, uh, which started in graduate school, I guess even before. So my undergraduate degree is in environmental science and public policy. Okay. <clears throat> it's always been at this nexus of science and policy and justice, right? Like how do we use, and economics, and how do we use all these different academic tools to understand the problem and to design solutions? And so I've always taken a super interdisciplinary approach to environmental issues. 
Um, and I've worked at the EPA on environmental policy. I've worked at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration on ocean policy. And so to me, conservation is this crazy puzzle that we're trying to figure out and use every tool at our disposal. Um, and one of those tools is our voices as individuals and as citizens. And I certainly use my scientific training to make sure that I'm saying things that are well-founded, that I'm not just spouting off. But I think that's um, having a really nuanced understanding of the scientific context and the dangers that we face as society. How can you not try to figure out how to use what's at your disposal to prevent these things from happening to the communities you care about, to the rest of the planet, like to humanity and the right. other 8 million species that live on this planet with us. So I think if there is an inflection point, for me it was um, thinking after the last presidential election about the role that science might or might not play in policy making mm -hmm. under the Trump administration. And I ended up being one of the leaders of the March for Science to try to preemptively say science is a critical input into making policy decisions. We need policies to be based on facts and evidence, and we are going to make a movement that will bring a million people out to march in the streets to say that with, like, the nerdiest, funniest signs you could possibly <laughs> the imagine. Signs, the signs are I remember the, so clever. The March for Science, my, I had two favorite signs. One was someone brought their golden retriever to the march in D.C. and had one of those sandwich board signs like over the uh -huh. back of the dog that said alternative cat. <laughs> I'm like, this is the direction we're going in, right? When we try to deny climate science, like doesn't make sense, right? It's absurd. Another one, because it was super rainy that day, someone had an umbrella and painted on the umbrella said, because of science, we knew it was going to rain. There you go. And so that is just so critical, right, for our safety, for whether or not we are drenched when we walk into a meeting. Like, we need to be using science to make good decisions. And that inflection point, knowing that we had to actually stand up for something so basic as the role of science in society and in making good decisions and protecting each other. And I just, I mean, the scientific method's pretty awesome. We should definitely keep using it we should definitely stick stick to that but it's funny you say we know because of science it was going to rain i get blamed all the time for not knowing the forecast or mm. for the forecast you know being wrong when it's really just the perception of the forecast yeah. usually being wrong and i remind them meteorologists are more accurate than your doctor mm. think about it how i mean that's what the research says that's what the science says interesting if you go, in terms of diagnoses yeah if you go to your doctor and you have something going on do they get it right the first time every well, time well i mean also our healthcare system is so messed up they have like five <laughs> minutes to diagnose you and they don't get a good you know big picture of like you right. as a human and what are all the different stressors and inputs and exposures in your life whereas i think the great thing about meteorology is you're actually looking at the big picture and I think the part that people often miss is like the percent chance yeah. of rain. It's like oh, we yeah. didn't say it was 100%, but like, you know, at 80%, you should be carrying an umbrella. Right, <laughs> right. But they'll get mad because it didn't 30%. rain. And I'm like, why are you mad that it didn't rain? I, it wasn't 100% chance. Well, you Come know, on. It's part of making things grow. It, <laughs> we need rain. We, we definitely need rain. We do. Yeah. And we have seen a lot of those changes go on with our weather patterns, but we're seeing a lot of changes in the ocean and sea level rise. And I know you're mm -hmm. a marine biologist. And yeah. something that I have found a lot 
when I am in the field talking to people, interviewing people for stories, is they will say to me, well, we wasn't New York supposed to be underwater 10 years ago? Or wasn't, mm. you know, Charlotte supposed to be wiped off the map by now? Where's that sea level rise? Where's that stuff? And I think that in their heads, they're picturing the lost city of Atlantis. Mm. What are we actually looking at for our coastal cities? What does climate change and sea level rise and, you know, the increased wave action, storm yeah. surge, all these things, what does that actually look like for our coastal cities? So sea level rise, um, sea level has risen a foot in the last century, and we're looking at one to three meters this century. So um, by 2100, say three meters of sea level rise. Which is nine feet. And so think about it as like a foot a decade. And so it's, and but we actually don't know. So the same as we have a percent chance of rain every day, mm-hmm. the, pro- the scientific projections around exactly how much sea level will rise and exactly by what date, that's, that's something that there are um, statistics around, right? There's an understanding of we know what direction we're going. Sea level is for sure rising. Um, it's for sure accelerating because of melting ice. And as the ocean warms, it actually expands. That's a huge component yeah. of sea level rise. That, people often don't think about it's like warm water is bigger so the ocean is getting bigger even without things melting and so we know all these processes are happening but the way that science works is that we don't know like everything has sort of error bars around it we know within like this margin of error what's going to happen and so that makes it a little bit hard to plan right yeah because it could be that we have an ice sheet in Greenland that collapses and all of a sudden we have many meters of sea level rise much sooner than we had anticipated. Which is just, I've been to Greenland and I have seen the ice and it is one of those moments when you see how much there is, it like makes your heart race. It's scary. Mm. What you just described is scary. Yeah. The thing that's scary to me is that we're not talking about it Hmm. yet. Sea level in particular. We talk about warming. We talk about sometimes droughts or floods or fires. But sea level is the thing that we're really not facing the implications for our coastlines. Because a third of Americans live in coastal cities. And I can tell you my understanding is none of those places are prepared for three meters of sea level rise. Or even one. No. And I mean we have billions of dollars going into cities that are trying to protect themselves a little bit. New York building, you know, all kinds of different things Mm -hmm. after Sandy. We've got Miami that's trying to raise the streets, Mm -hmm. raise everything up again. So Miami is still like I someone sent me a photograph of Miami Beach the other day and there were like seven construction cranes in the photo. And the fact that there are is still major new construction in places that we absolutely know are going to be inundated within a few years is totally insane. And so the first thing we can do in order to have a rational approach to adapting to the inevitable changes Mm -hmm. of climate that are coming is stop investing in new infrastructure in places that are no longer going to be habitable. Because once you have a building, of course you want to protect your investment and your assets. And so that sets us up to fail because we're then continually trying to, like, we're we're, we're then trying out. to, yeah, we're bailing it out. And instead of saying, like, okay, what's the plan? Like, we know the water is coming. We acknowledge that we can't actually hold back the entire ocean. Right. So what's our plan? Like, let's think about this. How do we make a transition? How do we transform these coastal areas and communities 
in a way that doesn't leave poor people behind right. in a way that do, that like is respectful of cultures and the connections that people have to these specific places and so that's the thing that scares me most is not just the changes that we know are coming but how little we're actually facing them head on which means we can't prepare because we're just like yeah sea level is going to rise but like someone else will deal with that and it's going to be later like it's not right. it's It's going to sneak up on us if we're not thinking about it now. This is the perfect place to pause for a minute because last Thursday, President Trump made an announcement that could make our coastal cities less prepared for rising seas. He proposed changes to the National Environmental Policy Act that would eliminate parts of the review process for new infrastructure projects around the U.S., things like roads or bridges or pipelines. The problem is it would no longer require review for future climate issues, potentially moving forward with billions of dollars of infrastructure that could be submerged beneath the waves in the not-so-distant future. Not exactly how we should be planning our cities to help mitigate climate impacts. Let's get back to Dr. Johnson. We have a lot of focus on fossil fuel industries and the way that they have systematically really lied and not revealed the whole truth of what, Mm -hmm. you know, all these carbon emissions were going to do to the planet. Um, Although scientists have known for decades and decades and decades. And even the science has been too conservative. We find out that like when you do an analysis of the the UN IPCC reports on climate Mm -hmm. um, impacts and projections, that because they're consensus statements and because they're going with like average numbers, they're not reporting the most extreme possibilities right. and extreme not in a in an irrational sense extreme just like as like what is the worst case scenario that is scientifically possible like right? if we go around business as usual and we don't come yeah. back any emissions which is which is what we have been doing, we're doing. for the, the past few years yeah. at least and so I, mean, I think that's the challenge right because we're hearing middle of the road projections mm-hmm. and so we're we can't prepare for the worst unless we actually like acknowledge that there is a chance that sea level rises seven meters yeah right like it we're hoping for one but like it could be a lot more and so having a discussion that's grounded in the full spectrum of possible futures that science projects and we like really hope it's not the worst yeah but like hoping is not a strategy and it's like not a policy and it's not a way to keep people safe so how much of this is that this new building that you're seeing and, and this infrastructure that's going into these coastal cities is a product of the U.S. economy really being propped up by real estate? Mm. I mean, it that is where so many people make their money. It's not just fossil fuels, but yeah. I mean, is that kind of a head in the sand? Let's make a quick buck on real estate that's going on? Or is it just a general ignorance? to what the risks actually are. Like, do people know and are deciding to do it anyways because they think they can make a buck? Mm. Or do you think it's a genuine ignorance? I think it's an all of the above scenario. Mm. I think as long as we can get insurance on things, we're gonna keep doing them. That's a good point. And I think beyond ignorance, some people, there's certainly a lot of people don't know the details of the scientific projections. And like, yeah. that's not their fault. Like, not everyone can keep up with all this, it's a lot. Um, there is obviously a role for better communication of that science too. Um, but I think there's an element of it that's just 
like too hard to get your head around. Mm -hmm. it, the changes are so massive that are coming. Huge swaths of this planet will become like really hard to live in yeah. because they're either underwater or they're too hot or you know they flood constantly or they're constantly yeah. bursting into flames. And how do you get your head around such a radical shift in a world that has been very stable in terms of climate for so many generations. So there's no sort of analog to think about. Like it's it's like biblical flood level kind of like, it seems like a parable or a myth that these things could actually happen. And so it's, I, I think it's part of human nature why we keep assuming that things are gonna stay the same. It's wild though, because I mean, we literally just saw Beaumont, Texas, and the surrounding area get 40 inches of rain again mm -hmm. from a tropical depression. Yeah. You know, and you have these massive rainfall events that are causing flooding, like what you're talking about. But in places like Charleston, which we know is having some of the worst impacts of sea level rise, mm -hmm. does it maybe look like you just can't open your business so often that the business goes under? You know, if the road is constantly flooding you can't get mm. people into it you can't open the doors how do you stay open yeah i think that just reminds me that every natural disaster as painful as it is and as destructive as it is to human life and economies and nature is also a moment for us to take a pause and think about how we want to rebuild if we want to rebuild right yes. like i think it's this like gut reaction to say like oh, we're going to rebuild we're going to rebuild stronger we're going to mm -hmm. fix it and i think that has become irrational and it's become a waste of resources because the storms are going to keep coming the sea level is going to keep rising and so not using these inflection points to actually change the way we do things is truly a missed opportunity because I totally understand the desire to keep your home and your business of course people have invested so much in building community in their gardens in their whatever it is right of course you want to stay and I wish that that made sense but I think that's the hardest part. Like, it doesn't make sense anymore to do things the way we used to do them. And I always thought, like, the title of Al Gore's movie was kind of lame and annoying, like, Inconvenient Truth. But two years ago, it hit me that it actually, like, that's the problem. It's extremely inconvenient to confront the realities of how dramatically our, our climate is changing because it requires us to totally change the way we live and the way we do business and where we where and how we do things. And that's just sh a shift of the status quo so big that, like, inconvenience is, the like, actually a good way to think about it. Like, we want things to get better, but we don't want to change. Yeah. And that that's just not gonna fly it's it's so easy though if you have a lot of money to make those changes mm. but i think that only buys you time it, true but like, but if you're a person who the majority of americans who are who own homes majority of their net worth is in their home mm -hmm. what happens when you can't sell it because yeah. it is re a repeat floodless property it, we do need that bigger infrastructure Absolutely. to buy people out because I mean, what are you going to do? Walk away from 
every all of your net worth everything that your your retirement age and now you're just gonna do what that's so scary it's terrifying and i mean government policies around buyouts and rebuilding i think is something i mean that is the role of government when things are happening that are so big that no individual financial decisions can be made that will solve it right like i know there is a lot of resistance to like too much red tape and too much government intervention but like this is what government is for to protect communities and citizens when things get rough, when things get crazy, when you as an individual cannot solve them. Like that's why we come together to think about these things. Um, And so it's something that has happened in some places. In New York City, right here, a community on Staten Island was bought out after storms a few years ago because they just kept getting damaged. Um, And they said, okay, we'll let you buy us out if this you know, gets converted into parkland and you don't just like sell it to another developer. Right. Um, but of course, these are communities that are really strongly tied to this place, you know? Yeah. And that's really hard. And I think I don't I certainly have the answers, but if we don't start talking about it, like we're never going to figure it out. So this reluctance to say like, okay, everything's changing. It's going to suck. But like there are things we can do and we need to figure out how to do them in a way that's respectful of community, of culture, of people's Mm -hmm. investments in their homes and their livelihoods and all of these things that make us who we are and connect us to each other. It is kind of wild how many people that have a hard time even evacuating, Mm -hmm. you know, financial roadblocks are a huge problem anytime that, and evacuation zones are based on storm surge. And we're going to see an expansion of that with sea level rise. Mm -hmm. You know, it'll reach farther inland, so. There's huge justice issues there too, certainly. So Hurricane Sandy hit New York City and it wasn't even at high tide. And And it it wasn't even really. A hurricane. A hurricane. So just imagine if a hurricane, actual like category even one or two hit New York City at high tide the storm surge would be devastating and because of the way cities are developed and where we put low-income housing the the Rockaways that coastal Mm -hmm. area um, and Coney Island has a, a huge proportion of housing projects in New York City and those people don't have the resources to rebuild or to move that easily but at the same time there's like this weird sort of plot twist where being a renter it's easier to up and leave than if all of your net worth as you described you've invested in your home so it's become like a very strange and complicated dynamic um, that again I don't know exactly what the best ways to address that are but the longer we put it off the harder it's going to be for sure. So getting back to the science just a little bit, when we talk about, you know, these different scenarios, we've had one foot of sea level rise, and we're talking one meter to three meters in some of these scenarios. Why are we seeing the acceleration? It it Just climate change is accelerating. Like, the climate is changing faster than we thought it would. I think this is the scary thing about scientific projections is every time a new report comes out about what climate scientists think will happen in the future, the projections never get better. They always get worse. It's always like, it's happening faster than we thought. It's going to be worse than we thought every single time. Um, And so that is, that's a real cause for concern and and a reason that taking like 
the the rosiest projections, the lowest estimates of mm-hmm. impact and change can be really dangerous because we've seen over and over and over. Actually, temperatures going up faster than we thought and sea level whoop, rising faster than we thought and storms like, yikes, this is all changing just like way faster than anyone had anticipated. And so that's, that's where we're at in terms of the science. And there's a um, UN report, a special report on oceans and cryosphere it's a new word to me, cryosphere, just all the ice on the planet. <laughs> Oceans and ice report, I call it. And that will have the latest science about where we are on that front. And we know that the outlook is bad, right? The numbers are going to be really depressing. And so I'm really focused on, absolutely, we want to know the truth. We want to be looking at things clear-eyed and based on facts. But we also want to be focused, really laser-focused on solutions. Because all yeah. of these are scientific projections Mm-hmm. And the range of possible futures is wide open, right? If we do nothing or accelerate the burning of fossil fuels and the um, the charging ahead towards industrial agriculture that's depleting carbon from soils instead of absorbing it is actually a huge part of the, both the problem and the solution. And if we don't overhaul our transportation system, I mean, we're heading towards like a very, very bleak future. But that doesn't have to be the case. And so all of this science gives us the clarity to think through, okay, so we know what the apocalypse looks like, but like, let's roll it back and think about, well, what could we do to have the best possible future? And we have all of these solutions that we could be implementing Mm -hmm. at larger and larger scale. And so for me, I'm excited to read the latest science and think about what that means for which are the most important solutions for me to be focusing my efforts behind accelerating. So when it comes to the atmosphere, we think about, okay, um, a nice fall day, but a cold front comes through and you can feel it. Like you're inside in a store and you walk back outside and it can go from 85 degrees to 65 degrees in a pretty short time frame. Mm -hmm. The atmosphere can react pretty quickly whenever it comes to these temperature changes, but the ocean... Not so much. Not it so it kind of has like this muscle memory. So yeah. even if we were to go to one of these scenarios that we all of a sudden turned off all emissions today of all greenhouse gases, what kind of like kind of a reflex reflex would we have? Like how long would it take for the ocean to like snap back mm. to pre-industrial conditions? An extremely long time. So the ocean has absorbed 30 to 40 percent of the CO2 we've emitted by burning fossil fuels, which has changed the chemistry of the entire ocean. We've actually changed the pH of the entire ocean, Mm. which is bananas. Like the ocean is huge and we've changed like the chemistry of the whole ocean. And that has huge impacts for things that are trying to grow shells or corals or, you know, shellfish, like the water is becoming more acidic. And so that just changes everything. and that's going to take a long time to re-equilibrate. So as we um, stop burning fossil fuels and charge ahead towards zero emissions, the ocean is still absorbing CO2 and then may start releasing it. And so we have to think about like how that yeah. recalibration happens over time. So it's yeah. not just like we stop emitting greenhouse gases and then we're good. No, we have like a whole equilibration between atmosphere and ocean that needs to sort itself out over centuries or millennia. Oh my gosh, then, I was going to ask like what? Are we talking like 10 years, decades, oh no, no millennia? Nothing in the ocean happens over 10 years, really. I mean, we can fill it with plastic in 10 years, but like solutions don't happen. So in the 10 effects years. we're seeing now were are really started, you know, 50 years ago 
100 years ago, 200 years ago. ago. I mean, the Industrial Revolution, right? Like thinking about how we started burning coal um, and what the impacts of that have been. And on the heat front, the ocean has absorbed 93% of the excess heat that's been trapped by greenhouse gases. So the temperature of the water has skyrocketed. And so thinking about an ocean that's that much warmer, that has huge impacts for our climate system, Mm -hmm. right? when we think about like why is Scotland warm? You can golf there year round, and it's not snowy and icy. That's because of the the Gulf Current. Yeah, that's bringing warm water up from the Caribbean, and that whole North Atlantic ocean circulation is slowing down because yeah. the water is so warm, and it does, and it's fresh water's coming in from the poles, and so the way that that current works is that you have warm, really salty water up by Northern Europe that then cools and gets heavy and sinks and it drives this current conveyor belt. But if the water is too warm and it's not salty enough because of all this freshwater runoff, that whole thing slows down. So weirdly, one of the impacts of climate change could be that Europe gets way colder because we stop this whole energy and heat transfer that happens through the ocean. So there's like all sorts of crazy global systems that we're messing with and breaking, right? Like. There's the ocean produces half of the oxygen in our climate that we breathe. And that's because of these phytoplankton, these tiny plants, and we're messing with them. There are like fewer and fewer of them because of warming and different conditions in the ocean that we're ruining. And more and more of us. And more and more of us. So like if we wanna keep breathing oxygen, like we really need to care about phytoplankton, <laughs> not just trees. Like I'm all for planting trees, but we also need to be really thinking about the impacts on the ocean. Thank you so much for taking some time to have this conversation with me and diving into this topic. It is such a large problem, but I love that you, to bring it back to what you said at first, like you're kind of in the eye of this hurricane. It's incredible to see this acceleration of action that really feels like it's happening. Yeah. To have this movement led by youth, to have this moral clarity of children to tell us like some things are right and some things are wrong destroying the planet and doing it in a way that hurts people is wrong and trying to fix it is right gives us the sort of marching orders that we need to focus on solutions and there are actually we have all the solutions we need we actually already have them we know how to electrify transportation and energy and we know how to improve agriculture and we know how to treat each other better and we know how to think through jobs so that there's a just transition and people don't get left behind. Um, we just have to develop the, the shift the status quo of the culture and force politicians and corporate leaders to be a part of this vision to creating a future that we all want to live in instead of just like barreling down a terrible road that we're currently on. So I think I think it's this, the cultural storm that we're seeing right now is a super good thing. We're finally confronting the issue. Good, I like that. That's a great place to end. Thank you for being a part of the Warming Signs family. Say hi to me on Twitter, or if you're at the American Meteorological Society Conference in Boston this week, say hi to me there, because that's where I am right now. You can come to some of my talks that I will be giving on a number of topics. Until next time.